Hiya. Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on from poverty to power. Might be a bit shorter than usual, you'll be relieved to hear, because I've got a bunch of um, uh, stressed students lining up to talk to me on Zoom, and uh, I need to be finish this in about 20 minutes or less. So first up this year, this week was uh, links I liked, and of course Ukraine dominated. A couple of things, one um, enjoyable, one um, interesting. The first enjoyable one was the Russian embassy in Lisbon, where two neighbouring houses projected the blue and yellow flag of Ukraine onto its facade, and the ambassador is reportedly apoplectic. So that was a nice piece of citizen um, uh, protest there. Second one, Branko Milanovic, who is one of my heroes, a Serbian economist, ex-World Bank, always interesting. And he wrote the kind of long term, he wrote a piece on the long term impact on Russia of, of, uh, and its, uh, of sanctions and its economic policy options. He reckons sanctions typically last for about 50 years, 50 years. Uh, and that's because once uh, imposed, they're very hard to remove. Uh, you're accused of going soft and it's politically difficult and they're in place, so why not just keep them going um, with Cuba as a typical example? So he thinks that Russian long-term economic policy will have to follow two objectives. Import substitution, which means trying to industrialise, produce stuff at home, uh, and a shift of economic activity away from Europe towards Asia. So the first one he thinks is going to be very difficult. I mean, uh, Russia has deindustrialized, massively dependent on exports of commodities. Uh, he's pretty sceptical about the shift towards Asia, in, uh, but, but less so. Uh, but really interesting to have that kind of long-term thinking in the middle of this horrendous crisis. The second one, Pablo Suarez, who is another of my heroes, uh, Argentine um, climate change activist. He's willing to try almost anything to get the climate change message across, and who can blame him? Uh, and uh, he has produced or got some people to produce a fitness dance class fitness dance class about climate impacts um so <clears throat> you know his previous post on the blog which was a couple of weeks ago said you know we need to re-energize humanitarian work in a changing climate so re-energizing to him means jazz fitness class so to help us all confront the deflating exhausting threats of changing climate risks I've had the fortune of partnering with choreographer A.J. O'Neill, filmmaker Nico Cassinelli, researcher and artist Leah Lovett, and about 30 volunteer dancers from around the world to bring you this short and fun fitness dance video to accompany our other more serious communications endeavours linking science to humanitarian work. Through words, dance moves and IPCC graphs, the core messages of this class are it's going to get too hot, get ready, re-energise. And it actually is quite... Uh, powerful when you watch it through not that I was dancing um, in the three minute dance video the music becomes faster and faster to signal that we'll have that we'll have more intense work ahead as the planet gets hotter will we be able to keep up and then in the blog he goes on to be let's be serious about our reality it's going to get too hot too tough too fast too much it's getting scary our global climate is changing and humanity is not doing what's needed if you're, if you're informed and sensitive, you confront an inescapable fact. Unbearable suffering is coming. Some of our humanitarian colleagues, and Pablo works with them a lot, are reporting unprecedented emotional distress, as well as thoughts of giving up and letting go. We hear similar accounts from many other concerned people. If not anticipated and addressed, psychosocial concerns can paralyse and demoted, 
demotivates the very same people who need to turn early warnings into early action. What next? Just before the pandemic hit, we published a brief report um, working with partners to explore the growing area of what has been labelled climate grief, among other terms evoking mental health, broadly depression, anxiety, mourning, etc. over climate change. Given the evolving nature of language in this field, we are focusing not so much on the idea of grief, which evokes an already occurred, clearly defined, irreversible loss, but rather on the idea of darkness, which enables us to focus on context and future horizons. We must alleviate human suffering and promote well-being of key populations, including communities at risk, disaster managers, researchers and journalists, climate activists, youth and so many others confronting the risk of emotional darkness linked to our changing climate. We must improve our collective ability to anticipate, diagnose and provide proper and transformative uh, proper support on the mental health front, harnessing the power of darkness to pursue illumination and transformative action. We must acknowledge hard truths while preventing paralysis and demotivation through serious fun. An IPCC fitness dance can help. The workload ahead will seem impossible, but it will be work that needs to get done. It's time now to re-energise the humanitarian system and become fit for the future. Go, Pablo. Third post was one for the geeks. Sunshine, elephants and boomerangs. Is a dramatic rise in global income inequality looming? And this is a guest post by Ravi, Am Ravi Kamba, who's a former chief economist at the World Bank. And two economists from King's College, Eduardo Ortiz Juarez and Andy Sumner. So they start off with a kind of reminder to people like me about what we're talking about here. Global equality, inequality 101. Inequality is the distribution of income across all people on the planet from the poorest to the richest. It can be measured with the Gini coefficient, which ranges from one, a totally unequal planet, or one person gets everything, to zero, a totally equal planet. Global inequality includes both inequality between countries and inequality within countries. So is global inequality going up or, up or down? And they talk about a sunshine narrative, which has been that global inequality has been falling since the late 1980s. But in a new paper for the UN, we find a great reversal could be imminent and global inequality could get much worse by the end of this decade. We find a boomerang. A global inequality boomerang is likely on the horizon. So, I mean, the basic reason, I'm not going to get into the details because it doesn't really lend itself to chatty stuff. It's quite dense and, and um, uh, economistic. But um, they're basically saying that China and India are now shifting from being, that in, in, in recent decades, the growth of China and India have reduced global inequality. But they've done so well that they're now pulling away from the poorest countries and that means that they are now adding to global inequality. So the same forces, same processes that reduced inequality over the last three decades are now going to suddenly start producing it, uh, uh, increasing it quite rapidly. Why does this matter? The global inequality reversal looms uh, towards the mid to late 2020s as middle income countries approach the income levels of high income economies, but pull away from low income ones. Such income differences between countries have consequences at a global level. For instance, they encourage migration from poorer countries to richer ones, or may lead to the marginalisation of developing countries in global decision-making bodies. There are compelling intrinsic and instrumental ones, i.e. that poverty reduction and a wider spread of prosperity are generally more likely 
in a world with more equality and accountable, effective governments. So that's, uh, that was the third post. And then the fourth post is a post by Jonathan Fox, um, who is a, a guru on accountability uh, in Washington, uh, introducing his new paper on what counts as accountability and who decides. So this is a real, you know, uh, people always like uh, posts about language and how we describe things. And I think this one's going to do well. Accountability is often treated as a magic bullet, an all-purpose solution to a very wide range of problems, from corrupt politicians and the quality of public services to systemic injustice and impunity. Yet accountability reforms struggle to deliver. Has the idea been stretched so far that the buzzword gets watered down into a fuzzword? I really like that distinction between buzzwords and fuzzwords and uh, comes from Andrea Cornwall and I've blogged on it in the past. The words that we use to talk about accountability are malleable, ambiguous and contested. This is not just an academic problem of discourse analysis. In practice, accountability claims often get hijacked by the corrupt. In the real world, accountability terms can have different meanings to different actors in different contexts and in different languages. Paying attention to these diverse understandings can inform accountability initiatives that build better bridges across sectors, cultures and agendas. Many have observed that it's difficult to translate the word accountability into other languages. Some English speakers assume linguistic determinism, that if exact uh, translations don't exist in other languages, then the ideas are missing. Yet the main obstacle to communicating ideas about accountability is their underlying ambiguity. Consider the huge difference between upwards accountability to the powers that be versus downwards accountability by power holders to people. Related terms even have contradictory meanings such as oversight, which refers both to accountability and to its absence. Enforcement actions that look like accountability to some can feel like persecution to others. There is much to learn from the words that people already use. Popular cultures may already communicate their own ideas about transparency and accountability. Looking back, some accountability keywords in English took on their current meanings in the process of civic or political action, like right to know, whistleblower, boycott, advocacy or greenwashing. The Accountability Keywords Project, which is John Jonathan's involved with, explores these multiple meanings with invited blogs plus a think piece, which is the paper he's just published, grounded in a robust tradition in cultural analysis. And then he goes into a lot of words which are going to really test my ability to pronounce different languages. But anyway, let's give it a go. New efforts to communicate accountability ideas can draw from diverse experiences with the uptake of accountability keywords that have nothing to do with translations from English. Some are cultural legacies, while others were politically constructed in the past two or three decades. Examples include Jan Sunwai, public hearing, and Jan Kari, right to actionable information in Hindi, Pada Shakta in Marathi, which means transparency, and Shafaf, transparency, and Jawadahi, responsiveness in Urdu. Latin America, Controlaria Social, Vigilantes Ciudadanas, Defensorias, and Veidurias, uh, describe citizen oversight, as well as Uvidurias in Brazil, ombuds, ombuds agencies. Ghanaian Hausa has Fili Fili, I rather like that one, full, of trans, full transparency. Chui Xiao, uh, Ren, has begun to be used in Chinese for whistleblower. 
and the idea of Ubuntu lifts, lifts up responsible leadership in Bantu languages, and Gadar governance includes accountability ideas in Oromo. Sudanese Arabic says, we want to know with Waruna. The Philippines have Pananagutan, accountability and responsibility, Bibinka, pressures for accountability from above and below, and their latest is in English, accountability frontliners, not to mention putting the term people power on the global map. Whew, glad that paragraph's over. Right, <clears throat> widely used accountability sayings also illustrate the enduring and diverse nature of accountability claims. Many may recognize who watches the watchman from pop culture fiction, but it dates all the way back to a Roman poet. Another classic saying reveals contradictions to hold their feet to the fire originally meant exactly that. Frederick Douglass's 19th century anti-slavery slogan, power concedes nothing without a demand, captures what today we would call a theory of change for accountability. An early civil rights activist invented speak truth to power, drawing on an ancient Islamic phrase. And a 1976 movie popularised a saying that sums up Watergate's investigative journalism strategy, follow the money. More recently, the, the slogans Black Lives Matter and Me Too went viral to challenge impunity. These historical threads may make for interesting chit-chat, but why might they matter for real-world real change agendas? Activists know that foreign-sounding terms or technocratic jargon may not resonate and can leave them vulnerable to nationalist backlash. Here are two more real-world reasons. Fuzzy ideas about accountability can either complicate or enable coalition building. Accessible discourse that resonates with popular cultures can help to bridge the social and political distance between pro-reform technocrats and grassroots movements. That's one of the points of fuzzwords. Yet potential allies may express similar ideas in different ways, or they may use the same words to mean different things. Second, re second reason, fuzzy ideas about accountability are vulnerable to getting used for cross-purposes. Anti-corruption ag agendas turn out to be easy to capture. We know this all too well in the US, where a corrupt president successfully wielded the anti-corruption slogan, Drain the Swamp, which turns out to originate with Mussolini. Jonathan Fox is full of really amazing facts. Plus, top-down accountability institutions can pursue unjust prosecutions. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition, for those old enough to remember Monty Python, or can undermine democracy. For example, in the name of accountability, Colombia's previous Inspector General unseated hundreds of elected officials without recourse. Plus, researchers can confuse practitioners if they claim to find that governance reforms fail to deliver when what they really measure shows a failure to deliver reforms in the first place. To sum up, and there's lots more in the blog, so I urge you to read it, the accountability field needs more creative ways to communicate in everyday languages while being mindful of the pros and cons of fuzzy discourse. And all this to broaden constituencies for change. So a really thought-provoking blog and an excellent paper. I'll leave you on that because I have to rush off and talk to my stress bunny students. Uh, have a great weekend. Bye.